Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Performance at the South Sydney Rabbitohs, Jared Wade. Thanks for tuning in to episode 241 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Jared on the show today. So Jared has recently been promoted to Head of Performance at the Rabbitohs. So it was great timing to get him on uh, in this transition. But the majority of this, of this episode, we focus on his, well, his, definitely his current job, but more so his previous job in terms of the rehabilitation side of things. So in this episode with Jared, we chat everything from asymmetries to benchmarking to gymnastics and everything in between. So really interesting chat with Jared to get his take on how his career has progressed in terms of rehab and what's what he does now that he didn't used to do and vice versa. So really interesting chat with Jared, which I am sure you'll enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by the University of Notre Dame, an Australian Catholic university who are excited to host their second annual Human Performance Summit. This year's focus will be on moving past the barriers that limit the integration of performance teams. So the Human Performance Summit, the performance team puzzle, will be held in the beautiful University of Notre Dame campus on Friday, June the 21st and Saturday, June the 22nd. Rather than hosting individuals to speak on generic topics, there's a focus on bringing in performance teams to speak on how they operate through success and failure. So each one of these presentations will be followed by an intimate question and answer portion and then tying everything together with a 90 minute practical session. It's something that I've spoke to loads of people about recently and people are finding less value in repeated presentations at conferences but more value in the conversations that go on the hallways. So both Friday and Saturday night they'll be hosting an event on campus with activities geared towards sharing an organic discussion. And it was these events last year that proved to be the highlight of the conference. So if you're interested in getting to know more about the conference, I've put a couple of links in the show notes which will take you to the presenter list and more information on the conference itself. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So I Measure You is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So I Measure You recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So IMSU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about IMSU, head over to the website imsu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at IMSU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jared Wade. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning, for me, evening for Jared, um, I welcome Jared Wade, who is the Head of Hab Performance at the South Sea and Rabbitohs. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks for having me, Rob. Oh, it's a pleasure having you. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, uh, background, experience, education, and what you're doing at the Rabbitohs uh, at the minute. Yeah, okay, so I studied um, human movement. I'm from country Victoria in Australia here originally. I studied human movement, which was kind of like an exercise science degree with a slightly more coaching based than your traditional exercise science degree. And I graduated from that in 2006. Like a lot of people that study exercise science, I didn't really know where that was going to take me. Um, so I sort of didn't really get a position out of that per se. I did some internships with the AIS in 2006 and the Geelong Footy Club at the end of 2006 into 2007 pre-season. Um, some work with the Geelong Falcons in the under-18s AFL competition. So just a few little things to sort of uh, wet my teeth a little bit in the in the world of S&C. But my first real role was with the Geelong Footy Club. So in 2008, I, I started as a sports scientist there, which was part-time, turned that into full-time and 
and basically worked at the Geelong Footy Club in the AFL for five years in sports science, just doing a whole host of things, you know, GPS data collection, wellness, heart rate collection, hydration testing, just anything that sort of sports science world was doing back then in, in the football codes in Australia. Um, from there, I then moved over to the Essendon Football Club, and that's when I got more into rehabilitation and the rehab side of things. So I think that was around about uh, 2012. And by that t- point in time, I'd met Suki Hobson, um, who was a really big influence on me as far as rehab goes, and, and I got to work with her for three or four years there at Essendon, really developing a lot of rehab processes and protocols and experiencing field and gym. Um Worked for four or five years there, so I think it was five years in the end at Essendon in a couple of roles, rehab first, and then I went to the head of strength role once Suki had left. And after about eight years or eight or nine years of working in the AFL in 2016, I got a, a call from, from Paul Devlin, who was a high-performance manager at the Parramatta Eels in the NRL at the time, and I was kind of looking for a change then, having spent a lot of time in the AFL environment. I wanted to experience something different. It's always something I wanted to do in my career, so I jumped at the opportunity to move to rugby league and move to Sydney. And I've sort of been in the role of head of strength and rehab at, at a couple of uh, NRL clubs here in Sydney with Parramatta Eels. And in 2017, so two and a bit years ago now, I m- moved over with Paul to the South Sydney Rabbitohs. Again, head of strength and rehab for a couple of years. And, and this off-season, Paul's moved on to another job within the NRL and, and I've had the opportunity to become the head of high performance. So that's sort of that's the role I have today and, and that's the way my journey sort of happened over the last few years in, in sport. Excellent. So the, the transition to rehab, that's an interesting one. So was that was that just from your interest in that area? Was that kind of forced upon you and it, and it was something that you actually really enjoyed? What was that transition like? It wasn't forced. I, sp- I suppose I probably started off thinking strength and conditioning and rehab was going to be more where I wanted to go, but my opportunity came in sports science. So while I was working as a sports scientist and developing a whole range of skills that I still use today, um, I always had an idea that I wanted to maybe go to SNC and rehab. And, and I think when Suki came on board at Geelong, which I think was 2010, so I'd been there for three years as a pure sports scientist, not really doing a lot of strength conditioning or rehab stuff. When, when she came on board, it re-sparked my interest in that rehab process and, and I got to spend a lot of time with her in, in her couple of years there and then a few more years at Essendon, really delving deep into strength and conditioning principles, rehab processes and building some some strong processes that we use today. So that sort of sparked my interest. It was always there. Sports science was a way to sort of get get to where I want to go. Um, and then and then that rehab really, really got sparked with Suki's interest in it because that's you know that's a part of what she does really well. And um, and just seeing her and, and the impact you can have in rehab, that, that's that's where I've sort of headed from that point in time. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I watched a little bit of a video that you from a presentation that you delivered. Uh, I don't know how long ago that was. Um, over, 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 obviously, over in Oz. And one thing that you went into straight away was the emphasis around the clarity of aims during a rehabilitation process. And you asked a few questions to the to the, to the group and asked what the the actual you know the outcome of, of a rehabilitation process is. And there's a couple of bits of discussion which were really interesting. So anyone that can, I'll put the link to that um, to that video out on the show notes so people can have a little watch. But I just wanted to get a almost relayed that back on on this podcast really and and the importance of clarifying the aims and the aims not necessarily being um you know just all about well it is all about getting the player back but there's also other aims around that and a, a bigger end goal it'd be great if you could just dive into that, that a little bit and almost relay that message um to the listeners yes yeah, certainly so i mean the aim of any rehab program is, is certainly to get the player back to peak performance both safely and quickly and, and as quick as quickly as you can that's a real big thing that we try to push we try to get blokes back in a really timely manner but it's got to be all safe and that and, and the peak performance thing is the thing that we discussed a little bit I remember that that session that I did um, that was online we, we discussed what peak performance was and a lot of people have that discussion around return to play versus return to perform like are you just getting them back to just just play the game or are you getting them back to perform at their best and, and they're kind of intertwined. So peak performance is always the end goal, but that's that might not, especially in the long-term rehab, that might not happen in match one in return to play. Let's choose ACL, for example, and they've had 12 months off. We, we can't expect peak performance in the first game back. So they may return to play at a certain point in time, but they'll not be at their peak performance for four, five, six weeks, which is a really important part of that rehab process as well. 
but from a from, certainly from a physical point of view, um, our aim would be, especially with the medium to long term, is, is that they do return in a better physical condition than what they were pre-injury. It's a really good chance to develop general athleticism um, in those medium to long term rehab programs, and you might address some deficiencies that they have, whether it be upper body strength or reactive strength or something, just general running conditioning that might be something that they, they didn't have before that they could have at the end of that rehab process. Um, so they're, they're the kind of things that we spoke about then and, and the, the goal is always as safely and quickly as possible. And from a physical point of view, the aim should be that they are, they are in better condition than what they were pre-injury because it's a really good chance to work on some of those weaknesses that athletes might have at that time. So when it, when it comes to setting goals, we'll go on the kind of physical goals um, to start with and move on to some of the things that may be put in place from a psychological point of view. But setting them physical goals along the way, especially in the longer term rehabilitations, how important is that and how would you go about structuring them goals for, you know, p- periodically along that, that, that timeline, that return to performance timeline? It's, it's a really important part of that goal setting piece, especially in the long term long-term rehab players, it's important to remember that most of these athletes or most of the athletes that I certainly work with in the professional realm, they're, they're there for a reason. They're, 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 they're living out their dream of playing professional football or professional sport and that means that they're generally really competitive and that they've got really clear targets set in mind for what they want to achieve in their career and, a, and an injury or a rehab journey within that target. It wasn't part of the plan for them. So it can be a really challenging time um, psychologically for those players and, and goal setting can really help with overcoming those challenges really quickly in rehab. So that, 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 that sort of communication for me starts from day one in that rehab process with the athlete. So we'll set short and long-term goals throughout that, that rehab journey. And the long-term goals is more around, you know, what, what do they want to be when they play, when they return? What are the weaknesses that they may see in their game or coaches may see in their game that they want to be better at when they return, but then also specifically around their rehab, what do they need to do to play? So having that real clear mind around from an injury point of view, these are the markers that I need to tick. Um, these are my exit criteria, if that's the way you want to put it, before I play, so they know where they're going on that journey the whole time through. And that's that long-term goals. But then within that, you might have, we generally run, say, might be monthly or every four or five weeks there's a different goal and they're the short-term gains. And that can, again, be around a general physical development tool. I want you know my bench press to increase from X to Y over the next five weeks. Clear goal that they've got to focus to come in and work on at the club every day, and that's their goal for that point in time. Or it can be a specific rehab goal as well. You know, If they're a, a lower limb injury and it's around the, the foot or, or Achilles or calf complex, you know, there might be some specific calf strengthening markers that we want to tick off before we return to run. So, again, having that clear communication with that player to say, you know, once you tick these markers, then you're going to be able to run. It gives them a goal in mind, something to aim for, and that's what they've been used to pretty much their whole careers. And so it's important to get back to that within the Rio process because then you get better buying from the players and, and everyone can be really clear at where you, where you are on that timeline of, of the Rio journey. So in, in, there's a lot of obviously psychological um, benefits of that goal setting, but is there anything in particular that you've done, maybe in a, a longer term rehab, that has been specifically for a psychological um, benefit? Whether it be taking the guys out of their environment to do something else, whether it be setting them a, a goal that is almost irrelevant to the to the rehab process, but gets them to focus on on a certain thing. Is there any examples that you could you could pull upon to um, to kind of demonstrate that? Yeah, there's a few. Every every athlete's individual, so you've got to treat them all differently. So you might have a young kid that's just really focused on his career and wants to get the best out of himself from a physical point of view. So it's increasing physical characteristics as part of his long-term athletic development plan, and that's just what he wants to do. Or your injury might be, I've got a specific example of, a, of an injury with a, a, an older type athlete who suffered an ACL injury towards the back end of the career, but still wanted to come back and play at that time. And, and his goal setting was more not around the physical development. You know, he just wanted to get back and play a, a couple of seasons towards the back end of his career, but using the time off in that period of rehab to set some goals around setting his life up for life after football. And that has a real psychological benefit as well. So I was getting more involved in the coaching side with the coaches and having a specific role on game day around um, opposition analysis and facilitating those discussions with the coaching group and, and, and the club 
um, but also then really driving that program with him and, and allowing time in his rehab program to go and do those things, potentially training at different times because he needed to be with the playing group or the coaching group facilitating and building some skills that were going to help him for life after football. You know, these these people are athletes first and, and, and um, are people first and athletes second, sorry. So um, if we treat them as people first and have, have their particular goals, what they want to get out of, of the rehab journey, to tick that off, the physical things can take care of themselves and um, can play secondary to that. And if, if it flips the other way around, then we can get so pent up in sort of fixing the problem and rehabbing the injury and working on your strength and working on this and, and miss out on that, that, that athlete as a person. And eventually, I, I've, I've, I've also done this, and eventually at some point in that rehab cycle, they're, they're going to crack and, and become quite unhappy and, and not get the physical outcomes that you need as well. So. And there's also some things that we put in place with our most recent sort of long-term rehab around different experiences. So as a younger athlete who'd, who'd lived rugby league all his life and it was about him experiencing some different things, so allowing him some time to travel early on in his rehab process and then once he was back into into training, giving him some experiences of a, of a different sport. So we had a link with an AFL club and even though he was a rugby league player, he could go and spend four or five days at an AFL club and, and do some specific kicking programs with some of their coaches. So... Um, it's really finding what that individual wants to get out of that time time that they're out of the game and, and trying to facilitate that as best you can around their rehab program. Mm-hmm. So in terms of setting them goals more from a physical point of view now, is there any, any technology, specific technology that you use or have been introduced to recently or something that's kind of followed through your career that you that helps you set them goals and allows that athlete to deliver specific markers before they are on that continuum, like I say, on that rehab continuum? Yeah, for sure. We do, we do use the technology as part of that rehab process. I mean, with, with your goal setting, you like to have objective, mark, objective markers where you can. So we're continually viewing things like GPS information, providing feedback on volume of work, intensity. There might be some specific running markers that they need to hit as far as max velocity or distance above a certain zone of high-speed running. So we use the GPS information in that way, probably less and less using that information as we go through our processes and more more focusing on specific physical um, information, so gym-based markers. So it really depends on the injury. For a shoulder, we might use some specific force data collected on the force plate at different angles or position. There's the ASH test, which we're doubling at the moment for some of our shoulder injuries. Hamstrings, we've got the Nord board. So we're really trying to get a, a be really specific and not just have one marker for one injury. Lower limb injury, we use a lot of hop tests. We use OptiJump to calculate contact time and reactive strength and or just traditional hop tests that might be or a mix between the two. So we sort of try and fit what technology we're going to use to what specific injury they have and base our rehab progressions around those markers. But again, we're always in that process of coaching the athlete first. So even though we might have a marker in mind, it's, it's important to coach that athlete first and, and treat them as an athlete and go along your, your general rehab progressions that you have in mind to achieve that marker rather than just chase the marker itself. We sort of want to, if we want to work on contact time in a reactive jump, let's say, look, if, if we just practice drop jumps or practice the contact time in that reactive jump, they're going to get better at it. But in order to make sure that it is a true athletic change that we're making, we might not have a focus of getting better at that specific test, but have a general athletic focus and then after four or five weeks, we go and retest and, and the actual physical quality has developed better. We'd rather run with that process rather than focus on a specific outcome. Uh, but we certainly use technology where we can. It's different for each injury and, and different for each athlete in, in which technology we'll lean towards. Do you guys use inertial sensors? Look, we've played around with it. We, we, we have a, we're running some PhD um, studies at the moment around the IMUs. Um, where we're looking at lower limb loading um, in rugby league match play specifically, so not necessarily an injury um, prevention or, or injury rehab um, focus with them, but we're we're certainly playing around with them and then looking at left to right asymmetries and looking basically trying to profile rugby league movement um, at the lower limbs. Um, but it's a really developing field that, so we're we're kind of got to understand what that data is, what that information means before we can really get clinical judgments from it. Um, so it's a growing space. We're certainly doing some work to, to try and grow that space a little bit more. Um, so we're not using them in the rehab timeline as such, but once we get more information, which some of this, the stuff, 
as part of Dan Glassbrook, one of our PhD students at the moment, should be coming out quite soon. He's getting to the close of, of getting to some publications with this work. Um, and so we'll have more of an idea around what specifically those IMUs can tell us from a injury prevention or performance point of view. Just dive into that asymmetry side of things because that in itself is a, is a grown area with some guys in the UK doing some really good work. Is that something that you track in your fit players as well as your rehab players? I know we're diving into the um, into the inertial sensor side of things, but on, on maybe other technologies as well, um, is that something you actively look at? Uh, we sort of try and any testing that we do, whether it be counter movement jump testing or Nordic testing or reactive strength testing, we are trying to get a look at just general athleticism, so double leg movements, but looking at asymmetries as well. So, so we are looking at it. Um, and what we find is, and, and I think what's becoming more common, is that asymmetries do exist and what is acceptable is different for certain athletes, but everyone has an acceptable level of – everyone has a, a level of asymmetry between how they move and what they're doing. Um, so I think the, the – the work that's going to be really interesting is what is the acceptable level of asymmetry? What are we going to accept from injury management, injury risk management point of view? Um, and then how much do we need to work at correcting those asymmetries? Um, how much time should we spend focusing on that? Or, sh- or should we potentially just spend time focusing on general athletic development and hope that the asymmetries take care of themselves? So it's a growing space, that one as well. But we're certainly got it in our thinking as far as our program and and what we're what we're doing um but we're not really delving really deep into that just yet um like to see a little bit more evidence around the acceptable risk and what the acceptable level of asymmetry is mm-hmm. cool one thing that i'm really interested in is the pressure and i've seen it firsthand um the pressure from coaches to get players back whether it be the, the best player that you've got who's out with on a, on a short term who's pushing for um, for him to be fit for Saturday, or it's um, a long-term guy that that kind of gets sidelined because of you know he's not he's not part of the plans for the next nine months, and he, he's kind of dealing with that aspect of not feeling it part of the part of the team. Just that general pressure from coaches towards a physiotherapist or a strength coach, or in your case, um, a rehabilitation process. How do you guys deal with that? Deal with that pressure from coaches to 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 push, push, push. I think it goes down now. Now I'm 100% in the mentality to push blokes back to return as quickly as they can safely. So that's that's my mentality as well. So that helps that I'm sort of on the same thinking as, as the coach um, or as a coach might be. But but you certainly don't want the coach to be deciding when to push a player and when not to. And I think it comes back to what we spoke about before around you know progressing based on targeted goals. So if everyone's clear of what those goals are, for a return to play point of view. These are his exit criteria for this injury. This is what he needs to complete before returning to play. If everyone's clear of those goals, the athlete, the physiotherapist, the rehab coach, and the coach, if everyone's really clear and crystal clear on what that athlete needs to do, well, the pressure sort of alleviates and goes away because when he reaches those markets, he's going to be able to play. And so if you stick to that process of having clear objective markers and, and expectations on that athlete before they return to train and before they return to play, a lot of that pressure can get alleviated and you don't get the, well, why isn't he ready to play now? Well, that's okay. Let's refer to his rehab program and see what markers he was supposed to hit um, at this point in time to return to training. And he hasn't hit the markers. So until he does, you know, he won't be available for training or he won't be available to return to play. So I think having really clear expectations and clear outcomes for that rehab program, what, what, what does the athlete need to do to play um, means that everyone's on it on a really clear, united front around when they will play and when they won't. And it's more, to, to be honest, in my, in my point of view, it's more around specific rehab progressions rather than timeframes, you know, a four-week hamstring or a six-week hamstring. Well, we know that there is certain tissue healing times that need to be considered, but as long as the player has achieved everything they need to do from a strength point of view, from a fitness point of view, density of work, intensity of work, specific football work, agility, all those things, if we've got targets for all of those different things and we know that when they hit those targets that they're going to be right to play based on historical data and what we've experienced in the past, then that sort of clears a lot, up a lot of those pressure from coaches, I find. Has it been a bit of a switch in terms of the coach's mind going from that time marker? So this is a, this is a four-week hamstring, which is great if it then becomes um, – a three-week hamstring because they're delighted, but but 
if it's based on certain criteria that makes it a five-week hamstring, how how's that kind of switch between mentalities with the with the coaches within the coaching staff? I certainly think uh, in the coaches that I've worked with over the past few years, it's been really well received because everyone everyone knows of the bloke that everyone's had the story of the guy that was that was supposed to be out eight weeks and end up coming back in four, or was supposed to be out four weeks and end up taking twelve. We've all had those experiences. So the timeframes that a medical professional or a surgeon or a doctor may give are based on their knowledge and their experience level, but we know that's a floating scale. It's got to be a floating scale. We can't stick to those timeframes, and that's where we've gone really down the, um, the, the, the specific physical targets, the marker-driven rehab process, and, and it's, if it's clear to everyone that that's the way we're going, um, then we generally – and the doctor will always have a timeframe in mind of when he thinks the athlete should be ready – but if you've got your doctor on board with the way we rehab and the physio's on board with the way we rehab and the coach and the athlete, everyone's on board with the way that we rehab, we rehab plays at our club, um, then everyone's really clear on, on that on that direction. And we don't change from that for specific injuries. We, we uh, Every injury has certain markers they need to hit before they progress onto the next stage and then before they return to play. Um, so in the environment that we've created at the moment, it's, it's working really well and it's a really clear um, framework for rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to chat about was the was the more detailed on the program design, and one thing that's come up a couple of times in previous podcasts, mainly with um, uh, Matt Taberner, who's a who's a head of rehab at Everton, talking about the chaos control continuum. I just want to get your insight into how you build chaos into the into the programs that you write in that on that um, return to performance uh, continuum. That's good. That's a great article that um, Matt. Produced, I thought it really lended itself to the way my thinking is around rehab, and that it's got to be chaotic. The game's chaotic in most of these rehab programs. The, the game throws up any sort of challenge. So, what we like to do is it, chaos can be planned physical chaos. So it can be around specific rehab or reactive agility drills or conditioning that's maybe not just your straight line MAS type running work, but more. Um, dynamic conditioning blocks that have a mix of every sort of stimulus, max intensity stimulus, a bit more of resilience building stimulus. So there's a real mix of conditioning works that we can do. We've also got GPS information where we can look at worst case scenarios in the game and try and mimic those as close as we can in a rehab program. So whether that's a four-minute play period and we're trying to come up with a four-minute conditioning block that has the physical elements or the running elements of that play period, that worst-case scenario play period, that, that, that's a part of building cast in the programs from the physical side. It's also around awkward positions. We pay a lot of respect into that. So it's a shoulder injury and we might focus on doing all of our upper body strengthening work in a certain plane of movement because we know that's safe for the shoulder injury, but we know when they get on the field that they're going to be in a compromised position at some point in time because – no one's perfect and they're not going to tackle perfectly on returning from a shoulder injury every time they tackle. They're going to get in a compromised position at some stage. So ensuring that we've prepared them for that and got them strong enough to handle that that, that sort of scenario. So that's the, the physical chaos that we do. Um, the specific in- interventions we use a lot is we do a lot of this stuff in the gymnastic centre. So we'll go to the gymnastic centre. It's a fun environment, but it's a reasonably safe environment. I find the players are mentally more prepared to do some things in that chaotic environment in the gymnastics centre that they would be on field or in the gym at the club. So we use the gymnastics centre to create some of those chaotic environments and throw in a lot of random movements that they need to do where they're not expecting a ball to be thrown at them at the last minute and they've got to dodge that and then dive on another ball and jump over a hoop and score a try on a high jump mat. It's building these really... Uh, dynamic environments and that's the space that we we do a lot of that stuff in but chaos can also be a mental part as well so it can be you know because the game's physically chaotic but it's also mentally chaotic not everything goes to plan you have to change your plan and adapt on the run and and we'll do some stuff around the mental side of it as well around specific sessions that we might do certainly long-term rehab specific sessions where we might do the player comes in with a general idea of what that session's going to entail but it changes on the fly and we go and we do something else that they probably weren't expecting at that time and so they've got to adapt to that response of, you know, things not going to plan. and, and have, so, so we try and simulate them. I mean, nothing's as chaotic as the game. So generally when they return to train, that's when they're building a lot of those chaotic environments. But if we can expose them to a little bit of it throughout their rehab process, you know, on a continuum kind of thing, it's not as, not as chaotic as what training is or the game is, but it's halfway there from everything being pre-planned and I 
we'd hope that it gets a better, better outcome. So they're the ways that we use it in our rehab processes at the moment. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jared. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more about gymnastics and the influence of Suki Hobson on Jared's practice. We also discuss um, some training and testing tools, for instance, the Nord board and some pre-training markers that Rabbitohs go through to try and gauge readiness uh, of their players pre-training and pre-game. So just before we do get into part two with Jared, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. They do projects all over Europe, in the UK, from Everton, and most recently at the Irish Rugby Union, which looks absolutely incredible, by the way. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out or just extra bits to add on to the current provision you've already got, whether that be new bars, new bumper plates, an extra rack, definitely consider the guys at Black Box Fitness. The thing that stood out to me was that everything is manufactured, customized, built on site in Belfast, which for me as a, as a buyer, that's exactly what I want. I want to know where it's coming from. So if there is an issue or there is some customization that I want, I can go straight to the people that are actually making the equipment. So if you want to know more about Black Box Fitness, jump on the website, which is blkboxfitness.com or follow them on Instagram and Twitter where you can see some of their projects at blkboxfitness. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. And I'd like to dive into the gymnastics side of things um, a little bit more. How easy is it from a from a kind of physical monitoring point of view? Is keeping track of what goes on in that gymnastics kind of quite chaotic environment? Because we've we've come to a point where we're we're tracking, we're monitoring everything. But in that chaos, that's quite difficult to do. How are you evaluating that, whether that that gymnastic session or that block of work has done what you wanted it to do? That's a good question. It's something I've asked recently around how we do that. Look, it's, it's really difficult to quantify load or the cost of those sessions in gymnastics because when you're in that dynamic environment, you, you nothing's planned so it's not like a conditioning block where you can say he's going to run from point a to point b in a certain amount of time and we know what running speed it's going to be and it's all controlled there's nothing like that when we go down there so it's really difficult so we use sort of when we're introducing some of this chaotic work i mean our gymnastics sessions will go anywhere from 40 to 50 minutes but it's not we, we don't just jump an athlete straight into the deep end and go down there and do all of our chaos work they've probably been down there for the six or eight or ten weeks leading into that element of the Rio process, doing some more planned stuff in the, in the gymnastic sense, so they're used to the environment. But then when we get to the chaotic stuff, we, we, we're drip feeding it in. So the, the way we do is we obviously go time. So you might do five minutes in this session and then increase that time to 10 minutes in the next session and then increase it to 15 minutes. And then finally it's a 40-minute chaotic session. But also that we pay, we pay attention to the, the perceived difficulty of that task. So... And that's where you've got to have that conversation with your athlete around how difficult was it for them and, and making sure that we're somewhat trying to increase the perceived difficulty. So not jumping straight in at the deep end at the most difficult task that they can do is that we're sort of increasing it, the difficulty a little bit in session one and then a little bit more in session two. It's quite hard, but it's sort of a bit more art. Oh, sorry, it's a lot more art than science in coaching. Um, so as a coach, you've got to be willing to adapt, willing to change and and try and get a really good feel for your athlete and how they're finding the sessions while that session's going on. 
One thing that's come up a couple of times that has kind of, <laughs> I think, probably been dodged by the people that I've asked it. So uh, please, please feel free to do the same. I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like over there, but especially in the big clubs over here, you've got marquee players who may bring their own members of staff or may have a go-to person, especially when it comes to rehab. Someone they trust, someone they really trust that's been through, um, been with them at various clubs, or they've got to know them externally from the club. Not saying we need to discuss that because that might not be applicable to you guys, but trust is obviously a huge thing, and that's why these marquee players bring their, their externals in, and for, for whatever reason. But how do you guys, and, and it may be just a, a reiteration of what we've just said, but how do you guys build that trust, especially with the, the big players or the the new players who've had different experiences? How do you guys build that? trust which is essential for that along that process it is a great question and in certain environments it, it probably can be a little bit more difficult to navigate than others i mean our environment's quite good um we find that we've got a lot of trust in our players but there would be environments that it is and look we've, i've had a couple of those situations where a player's had a certain thing that they wanted to do or a certain treatment they wanted to seek or a certain person that they wanted to reach out to and, and building trust in the players or, or having a player be confident in the job we can do comes from treating them as a person first. So if we're treating them as a person and, and they're happy and, and they know we're listening to them, then they're going to develop more trust in us. So if a player came to me and said, oh, I've got a sprint coach that I really like using, I've used him before, I used him at X Club and um, through this rehab process I want to go and do a session a week with that sprint coach to try and improve my sprint performance. Now we've got a sprint coach at our club, but if, if I was just straight away go to that player, you can't do that, and you've got to be the sprint. You've got to use a sprint coach from our club, and you're sort of not listening to them and not respecting what they want out of it. It's their program. This the, the, the program that the athlete's doing. It belongs to them. It's not my program. It's not an SNC coach's program. It's not a physio's program. It's the athlete's program. They are in charge. So it's about accepting that that's what they want to do. Having a discussion with the staff at the club that we're involved in first, ensuring everyone's comfortable with that, opening up a direct line of communication of the professional or the expert or the person that they want to they want to seek rather than just sort of sending them there and saying, do what you will. It's about opening up a line of communication between you and that person. I, I don't mind it in certain circumstances. I think if a player's adamant that they want to go down a certain path of using a certain person or a, or a technique that might be outside of what we deliver, then we need to listen to the athlete first and that's going to build Help help them build trust in what we're doing, and that we're we're caring for them first as a person, and we're, and we're getting and the program's there, so we're getting that program to tailor to fit to what what their needs are and what their wishes are. I think that's a really important thing. Cool. So on the pre injury, so so looking at injury prevention, I know that's a that's a term that not a lot, a lot of people are starting to um, move away from, <laughs> move but away injury from prevention sure. practice, yes. So starting to move, starting to move away from that. But in terms of identifying the risk factors for each individual player or a group of players or a, a, a position, how do you guys go about that at the Rabbitohs? How do you go about it, whether it be um, screening, whether it be questionnaires? What? How do you go about that to identify them risk factors? Oh, is it is looking at research? Is it looking at? Is it discussing with other practitioners? How do you go about that? I think that the best injury injury risk management we'll call it the best um, risk management that we can do is to have real clear open discussions with all of our staff members I don't have the answer the strength coach doesn't have the answer the rehab coach doesn't have the answer the physio doesn't have an answer but if we put all those brains together in a room and discuss things then we'll generally come up with something that might be best practice for that player so that's the important thing is that it's always open no one's got the one single thing that is going to fix the player or prevent an injury or or reduce the risk factor for that that player so I think that's that's a really important part of it but um the, uh, I've probably moved along this timeline with a lot of people in the time that I've been involved in sport over the last 10 or so years in that you know I, I started off in my career and I was looking at the magic number and you know it wasn't called if you chronic workload ratios back then but we were applying that kind of mentality to the way we were viewing data and if a player had a spike here or an alert there or an overload there then we'd reduce their training volume and think that that was our injury prevention program and i've sort of done a bit of a you know 360 on or done a bit of a 180 on that and now looking at it from the other side and trying to use that data to 
to get them to do more. I, I think now, I think that what what we try and do is our our philosophy is the best injury prevention we can do now is a is a well planned training plan, periodized as much as it can be, but we ensuring that our athletes are completing it. So, but by reducing an athlete's training load, we're sort of saying that we know the magic number and we know that they're not going to be able to tolerate X amount of load. Well, we really don't know those answers just yet, and we're seeing more and more data to prove that we don't know those answers. So the biggest the biggest injury prevention that we do at the club is getting them to train more, getting them to train on field and in the gym and complete the training session that's planned for them um, rather than trying to reduce or minimise the load that they're doing. And that sort of turns into risk factors. What we're finding with our sort of specific athletes in our data set, our biggest risk factor for an injury at the moment is is training completion. So if, if your player's missing training, missing five minutes of a session here, eight minutes of a session there, missing a weight session there, missing this here, then they're generally the players that seem to be coming up with problems physically and not being able to back up and do sessions and putting themselves in a in a risky zone for, for injury. So we're, we're always looking at those training completions. Players with our highest training completions through pre-season generally find themselves to be re- relatively injury-free in season and vice versa. If they've had an interrupted pre-season, then... You know, I can almost put my house on it. They're not going to get through all games completely injury-free throughout the year. They're going to struggle to back up at times. They're going to struggle to perform at times. So we put a lot of our time and effort into what can we what what, what can we do as a staff to get them to train more. So from a screening point of view, so we we do all of the screening. So we're trying to give our players a, a dose of a dose of training and then assess their response to that training. But we're not modifying them based on that response. So the specific example I can think of is, is groin squeeze. We might look at groin squeeze to see our players adapting to load or responding to load the way we want them to. And we might get a groin squeeze alert, players down on their groin squeeze so they're, they're struggling a little bit more. Ten years ago, my view was, well, they need to be modified from the training load that they need to do because their groin squeeze is down and that means they're physically in a worse spot. So we'll modify their training load and we'll get them through training that way. We've sort of flipped that now. We we, we go, you've alerted on your groin squeeze. What can we now do from an intervention point of view? Is there anything we can do from treatment, uh, preparation, specific work, stretching, mobility, whatever it might be? Is there anything we can do to improve that groin squeeze? And if, if we can, good. If we can't, then that's okay as well. We'll, we'll probably still continue with the training that was planned and, and really assess them closely throughout that because training completions become one of the biggest things that we're trying to do to build resilient athletes. Let's take groin squeeze for an example. At what point do you does that become a risk factor to to alert you to actually do something pre training? So is it a like five percent, ten percent? What you know, standard deviations? What what that what does that look like? Well, we'll, we'll just go historical averages and standard deviations from that historical average. So we'll yeah. look at a, a, a four to six week average. Um, I think we look at um, and are they within standard deviation or not but we're also trying to view trends as well so a one-off instance of a of a groin squeeze being down or, or any alert really a one-off a one-off alert isn't uh, isn't a massive issue for us we'll put some interventions to try and bring that alert up but but then viewing the trends of that is it, is it continually dropping down over time therefore we might need to drive further harder interventions with that player to try and reverse that trend is there anything over and above i'm guessing there is over and above the groin squeeze anything else that you guys are doing we do we do a we do a whole host of physical tests, um, groin squeeze. We look at um, some range of movement tests, um, some Thomas tests, um, some pain sort of tests, knee to wall. There's a whole host of probably pre- pretty close skill physical markers that we're that we're using. Um, we're assessing our hamstrings with Nordboard data weekly, all that kind of stuff. So we're kind of trying to get a mix of performance tests. Um, in doing that, we, we're using the GPS a little bit more than what we have in the past from a, from a fatigue monitoring performance test, assessing some acceleration metrics, both max acceleration and then density of acceleration work, trying to use that as part of the puzzle. But there's no sort of one answer. There's no one test. We're trying to collect all of this information and, again, discuss it as a, as a staff and then come up with the, what we think is the right decision or the right intervention for that player at that time. So you mentioned a couple of things there that are like the Nordboard that, that are training and testing tools. How important has it from you, been from you guys on that kind of Jace Delaney invisible monitoring side, not not to take the player 
and have them performing, you know, half an hour's worth of stuff beforehand, but actually incorporating that within to training. Certainly, as we get in season, that's all of our all of our testing. I mean, uh, we we have a morning screening that we'll do first day back from a game, which is around some basic physical markers led by the physios and trying to identify interventions that they might be able to do to get them in a better spot to train. But from a performance point of view, whether it's acceleration work or strength work, power scores, Nordic training, it's all the training program. We don't have any standalone tests. So if the players are doing counter-movement jumps as part of their program, then guess what? We'll probably monitor those on a force plate. If they're doing Nordics as part of their program, we'll continue to monitor that on Nord board. So it's all part of their program. We're not asking them... We're not having a testing day or saying, well, we need to do this test at this time. It's just all part of the program and we're just assessing players on any given day. I was just having a conversation with a couple of colleagues earlier today around um, Nordic Nordic testing. Five years ago with Nordboard data, I was testing them four times a week and thinking I was getting a snapshot of the, of the playing group and putting an intervention, uh, four times a year, I mean, and putting in interventions if they were down. So I was testing them pre-season, end of pre-season, mid-year and end of year and getting a snapshot of where they're at. With the Nordboard data, um, we've had a practitioner come aboard, Aidan Oakley, um, who's, who's one of yours, and, and he's been really, <laughs> really happy to build Nordic testing and assessment every time they do the do the Nordic exercise. So he's assessing them every week. Now we don't really act upon that data. What we've seen is a huge variability week to week of of those screening scores. So that that old mentality of we'll test here and then we'll do an intervention for six weeks and then we'll test here, you may be missing the natural fluctuations that they have with any of these sort of maximal effort performance tests. So more consistent testing gives you a better idea of where their baselines might be at, but also gives you a better idea of what you need to intervene on and what's just a natural fluctuation in that person's physical performance data on that week. Mm-hmm. Lovely. So that you're just going back to right at the start, your background and your, your recent move from head of S&C to uh, head of performance role. How that How's that affected on your day-to-day work is it more of a management structure is it less hands-on is it a bit more kind of overseeing what does that look like uh well sort of sort of with the setup that we've got here at the club i've still been able to keep a high amount of hands-on work through the conditioning elements so what i've done is probably moved myself out of the gym a little bit and, and more onto the field previously i was i was strength and rehabilitation so i was on the field with the rear players and, the, and in the gym with all the players. But now I've sort of moved out of the gym and and we've got um, Aidan Oakley and Chris Dorman run, running that side of it so that they're taking care of all of the strength and power programs. Um, again, they're taking care of a lot of the rehab processes with the physios as well. So I've more identified that my time now needs to be spent with the group on the field, um, working with coaches. It's certainly a, a massive part of it. I've, my, my relationship management with coaches has had to become a lot greater. And spending more time with them to understand what they're wanting, both both the head coach and the assistants, what they're wanting out of the program, um, and then work, working with, 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 with them a lot more rather than probably my previous role was working with the players 90% of the time. Now, now I find myself still working with the players on field during conditioning blocks and, and spending a lot of time with them during their football drills on field and, and seeing their response to that. But a lot of the off-field certainly spent working with the coaches on on their views of the program and the way they want to progress forward from a physical point of view and how that relates to the technical and tactical elements that they want to implement with the team. So it's only been a change, but it's been been exciting nonetheless. Excellent. So I just want to firstly thank you for your time. I promised I'd keep you around 45 minutes, so I'll, I'll definitely try to stick to that. But anyone that wants to follow up with you or get to know more about you and your work and, like you say, the, the, the PhD um, stuff that you're doing at the club, what, what's the best place for people to contact you? The best place is probably Twitter, even though when you might go on there, you might look and think that I don't tweet a hell of a lot. But, but Twitter is certainly a good place um, to sort of reach me. Um, so I'm not actually sure what my Twitter handle is, but I can follow that up for you and, and, and get that to you. Um, but, but just search Jared Wade on Twitter and it's probably the best place to get into contact with me. You know, Message me if you want more information. I, I'm big on um, sharing within the strength and conditioning community. I think it's something that we that we are doing better and better these days and and I, I don't have all of the answers and so I'd like to share some of my ideas with someone else because they might have a better way to do things than what I do and so I'm always trying to share as part of that learning process and I think the more we share, the, the better off the the industry will be and the, and the better out, outcome we're going to get for the players that we work with. So uh, Twitter would be the best way to reach out to me um, if you want to get in touch for sure. 
Excellent. Any workshops coming up that people can see you speaking at? Um, so there's one coming up in Sydney, which is uh, uh, run by the, the guys at the Sydney Swans, um, coming up in June. So um, that's a workshop that I'm speaking around some periodization strategies in pre-season. If you do a, a quick Google search of um, the Swans workshop, um, you should be able to find that. I'll also put something up on Twitter. Um, I put something up last week, actually, and then, and then I'll, I'll put some more things up on Twitter over the next couple of days around that. So I'm speaking at that one coming up in June, um, on a Sunday in June. Um, and then apart from that, that's all I've got coming up at the moment. But uh, um, I'll be certainly visiting a few things. I know that the Sportsman Network, who I've spoken for before, are bringing out Edna King towards the end of this year in Australia, and I'll be headed along to those sessions not to speak particularly, but listen to what he's got to say and, and try and network with a few people and, again, share ideas and try and see a way we, we can do things better. So I'm always trying to get, get to a few of those events as well. Excellent. Sounds great. Well, Jared, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on and um, good luck for the rest of the season. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 241 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So huge thanks to Jared for coming on the show and sharing his experience and knowledge in terms of the rehabilitation side of things. Also big thanks to I Measure You, Hawking Dynamics, Black Box Fitness and the team behind the ACU Notre Dame Human Performance Summit. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, please make sure you do. So every Thursday morning, UK time, a world-leading expert will find their way onto your phone so you can listen and learn while on the move. So thanks again for tuning in and I will speak to you next week.